Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. These SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work from home period in lieu of our in-person conferences. And what we really try to do with these SALT Talks is provide a platform for uh, leading investors, creators, and thinkers, and to provide our audience a window into the minds of those subject matter experts as well as provide that platform for big world-changing ideas uh, that we think are shaping the future. Uh, today, we're really excited to bring you a panel uh, focused on health technology and healthcare investing, uh, featuring three esteemed panelists, uh, Dr. Vishal Gulati, Noor Swade, and Vas Bailey, who's a PhD. I'm gonna read you brief bios on each one of the panelists, and then I'll give them a little bit of time to explain more about their background and how they got uh, into health tech investing. Uh, Dr. Vishal Gulati is a venture partner at Draper Esprit and an advisor to Oxford Sciences Innovation. He's an investor and promoter of data-driven healthcare in Europe and has an active portfolio of about 20 companies. Uh, these companies represent a wide range of technology platforms and applications, ranging from digital therapeutics to machine learning and AI. Uh, Dr. Gulati is a trained physician and he spent time uh, that includes time at the St. Mary's Hospital Department of, of Medicine in London, uh, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Our next panelist is Noor Swade, who's a general partner at Global Ventures, which is a Dubai-based venture capital fund working uh, with globally-minded growth stage companies in the Middle East and Africa region. Uh, increasingly, Global Ventures is focused on health tech investing as that opportunity set has expanded. Uh, previously, Noor was the chief investment officer at Dubai Future Foundation, and was a founding partner at Leap Ventures, which was a, a growth stage VC based out of Dubai and Beirut. Uh, Noor is a very active angel investor, and prior to her angel investing and venture uh, capital days, she actually founded and scaled Zen Yoga, which was the first yoga studio in the UAE that she later sold to a private equity firm in 2014. Uh, she began her career as a biopharma strategy consultant at Accenture in Boston. Uh, Noor is a director in residence for the Corporate Governance Program at NSAAD and a founding board member at Endeavor UAE. She has a bachelor's degree in finance and economics from Boston College and an MBA from MIT's uh, Sloan School of Business. Our last panelist, is, last but not least, definitely is Vas Bailey, who's a PhD. He's a partner at Artist Ventures, where he focuses on investing in novel and breakthrough health and life sciences companies. He currently sits on 10 boards and he serves as an advisor to several other startups. He's the founder of Artist Ventures Healthcare Pioneers, which brings together some of the world's brightest minds to accelerate and incubate life-changing ideas in healthcare. In his past role as venture partner at Artist, uh, he helped portfolio companies with their business development and growth strategy. Prior to Artist, Vass uh, co-founded and served as the general manager of the GLG Institute, and he served as a consultant at McKinsey. Uh, he received a PhD in biomedical engineering focused on the use of nanotechnology and epigenetics for personalized chemotherapy and early cancer detection from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And he's been recognized as one of the world's leading biomedical engineers by the Siebel Foundation. Thank you all for joining us. A reminder to all of our participants, if you have any questions for the panelists during today's talk, you can enter them into the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. So the first question, I'm gonna go around the horn. Uh, we'll start with uh, Dr. Gulati. Uh, I spent some time talking through your background and your resume, but could you please give us a little bit more about your personal background and your journey uh, into health tech investing? Um, thank you very much, John. Uh, very delighted to be here. Uh, I uh, started my career as a practicing doctor, and then I did research as a clinical research researcher, believe it or not, in virology, uh, which was not a very exciting field in those days, but now this is, it, is, it has become very, very topical. Um, and then um, I, was, I started working at the Wellcome Trust after that, which, and got involved in the human, human Genome Program. And that kind of opened my eyes in terms of data and how um, having large amounts of data can, can open our eyes to a different world in, in healthcare. And interestingly, at the same time, uh, venture capitalists around the world were looking for people with those kind of skills to help them uh, look for investment opportunities. So I got headhunted to, to work for a venture capital firm where I spent uh, a number of years. And around 2012 or 2013, I started to look at how the ecosystem was evolving from a very different lens. 
and uh, just the availability of internet and handheld devices had completely changed people's lives. And it seemed um, quite logical that that would come to healthcare as well. And um, over the last few years, uh, all that data that we generated also opened our eyes to new technologies like machine learning and other ways of analyzing that data and making sense and, and inference out of that. And that has catalyzed a, a huge uh, uh, a renaissance, a, 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 a generation of companies that have taken that data and applied it to hard, hard medical problems. And that's the, that is the interface at which I love to invest. Thank you, Dr. Galati. Noor, how about you go next? Thank you, John. Um, so, so for me, it's more of venture capital. So it's helping startups grow, supporting startups in emerging markets is what we're very passionate about. My journey started in biopharma, as you mentioned, moved into wellness, at the same time scaling and IPOing a company out of emerging markets. So really, it's been a little bit of everywhere. Um, when this crisis hit, when COVID suddenly, um, you know, became part of, part of, I guess, the global narrative, what we saw was very clear, which is the financial crisis 10 years ago drove the need for financial inclusion and lots of technology um, leapfrogging to allow people who are not part of the financial network to come into the financial network. Um, and we saw fintech, right? And now we have this health crisis, which will naturally then highlight the need for healthcare inclusion across emerging markets. We sit in Dubai, we have um, you know, the Middle East and Africa as a one and a half billion person population where healthcare access is lacking. And so once we started to see healthcare inclusion prioritized and a lot of the founders across the region try to address this need and need more and more capital for growth, we decided to lean into that and use our background and our knowledge in the space as well as our background and knowledge in technology and venture investing to support and enable these companies to provide healthcare access to the population. Thank you, Noor. Voss, you round things out for us. Great. I've been passionate about healthcare from as far back as I can remember. I started my first company when I was 17 years old, and it was in the world of fitness monitoring. Yeah, clearly you can't tell fitness from this. I understand, but it was something I started, and it was a uh, I went on to the Hopkins uh, School of Medicine, where, as you mentioned, I got my PhD. I'm also on the board of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine BME department, which has been the top program in biomedical engineering for since they created it 40 years ago. And what biomedical engineering is essentially is where I invest at Artist Ventures, which is the intersection of technology and medicine. Um, when I left that world of academia and joined McKinsey and Company, I had the privilege there to meet Jeff Kindler the CEO of Pfizer, wherein it changed my world and my life because this was a person who did not have great networks in like the world of pharma and tech suddenly changed overnight because I started a company with uh, a business with Jeff Kindler, which was called GLG Institute uh, under GLG. And we built what is the world's largest network of CEOs. I had 1,500 former CEOs working for me. Uh, at that point, and including collaborating with people like David Brennan from AstraZeneca and Shlomo Yanai from Teva. And the way we think about healthcare is, and I'll say something controversial to start with, because many of you will disagree. We uh, love controversy. Yeah, I think uh, healthcare should be a right that everyone has. You should not get better healthcare just because you're born in a close to Johns Hopkins or close to uh, a Stanford University. I think whether you're in the Middle East or in India or anywhere in the world, like I think it is uh, healthcare is absolutely broken because I think that people who are have access to great healthcare tend to do better than people who don't, and that drives me every day. It's not to say that you can't make money in healthcare, right? It is the fact that we are focused as a venture fund. On returns. It is not a nonprofit. We're razor focused on delivering returns to our investors. That being said, why not also have a major impact in the ideas you invest in as well? And that's what allows me to wake up every day and motivates me to uh, do what we do. And we believe that the clear edge you can give innovators in healthcare, which is such a complex web, is through people. And so my past life of having the CEO network translates into how we give our companies an unfair edge in trying to innovate and move forward. Well, Dr. Galati, you're based in London, so you don't have as many of the healthcare cost-related issues you know, from a population perspective that we have in the United States. And Avas, you're based in San Francisco. So 
I want to ask, start, starting with you, Dr. Galati, a broad question about how technology is changing the healthcare field, helping address some of those concerns around healthcare costs, and, and particularly for you, Dr. Galati, you're very focused on data-driven healthcare solutions. So how has the collection of data and the harvesting of that data uh, affected and improved healthcare solutions? So I'll give you a, a number of concrete examples. So I think that the way healthcare is now delivered is gradually becoming much more uh, distributed. It is no longer centralized in, in hospitals or centers of excellence. It's still more centralized than I would, I would like it to be, but it is gradually uh, percolating outside. So just in my portfolio, uh, the companies put together have helped more than 50 million people with their healthcare needs which is not the kind of scale I can imagine by starting a hospital or running a center. I just cannot imagine that level of, of impact. And so, and then with that data comes, comes additional benefits. So one of my portfolio companies, which is called AISA Digital Health, it, is, it has several hundred thousand hours of therapy, uh, CBT for patients with depression and with anxiety disorders which they have now analyzed, and now they are the best CBT provider in the world. In the UK, for example, we have national level data of effectiveness of CBT, and we rank higher than all other providers because we use the data smartly, and we are able to build, build, build something out of that. So to give you an example, if the leading drug for depression today was surpassed by another drug that was as much better as ISO is from other CBT, that would be a multi-billion dollar drug. So we can build value from data, which can, can be then measured against outcomes. Um, another example is a company in my portfolio, uh, Zoe, founded by, by a close friend of mine, which launched an app uh, very early in the COVID, uh, uh, when, the co when COVID-19 happened, for people to just track their symptoms. They now have more than 4 million users around the world. They have published uh, about a month ago in Nature Medicine what, the, what clinical symptoms doctors all over the world should be looking for in patients who suffer from COVID-19. So just being able to collect all that all data has given us this superpower where we have been able to advance healthcare in, in a, at a speed which would, which would not be possible before. Noor, you focus on investing in emerging markets, mainly the Middle East and Africa region, and there's unique challenges to healthcare access in those places. How is technology helping to distribute healthcare solutions in emerging markets? Um, so I think that these questions are always better answered the way that Dr. Gulati did it. So thanks, Michelle. It's through examples. So one of the you know, one of the companies we recently invested in in March, and this was pre-COVID, this was a, you know, a theory that we had starting in January. And in March, we transacted into a company called Helium Health, which is based in Lagos in Nigeria. We were fortunate to have great co-investors in that that are enabling us as well, like Tencent and AIC out of Japan. And what Helium does is effectively it's an EMR for hospitals as well as regulators, but then it also has the patient side. So when the patient leaves the hospital or the doctor, they have a report of who they saw, what they said, and what the recommended treatment is. Now, if the patient cannot afford the treatment within the platform, they can get a loan instantly. And so the different pain points for patients along the journey that get addressed in emerging markets are very unique and are very real. And they also apply to a lot of developed markets, right? So in Europe, a lot of times it's a treatment and people worry about how they're gonna afford that treatment, but there's no platform to say, I want a loan now. And what Helium's done is really worked with the banks and the, and the regulators, as well as the hospitals and providers saying it's a lot cheaper to treat the patient now when they have the flu than next month when they have pneumonia. The uniqueness of Helium is that it's online and offline. So you cannot depend on electricity and internet in most of Africa. The need for Helium is because in Africa, less than 30% of hospital visits are documented. So you have a massive problem in a really large population. You want the data as Vishal was saying. So now they have all, you know, millions of patient data information on their platform, and they're also solving real problems. They've leapfrogged in the sense that it's online offline. So it's like if you take Epic and the Salesforce API that enables the patient and, 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 and put it all together, but it's one solution. It's a two-year-old company. It's a Y Combinator founder. 
right? But he's gone back and said, here's a real need for real people, and he's able to leapfrog. And we'll see more and more of these companies. And again, I go back to the financial inclusion you know, similarity. What's the M-Pesa of healthcare? M-Pesa came and it changed the way people thought about financial inclusion and what's possible for finance digitally. So what are the companies that are going to come out of emerging markets that are going to change the way we think about healthcare and access to physicians and really push the envelope for, and take us from inside our box thinking to outside the box thinking? So Vas, turning to you, you've published over 30 scientific papers and you hold four provisional patents from your research in nanotechnology for the early detection of cancer. And cancer is an area where you've really done a lot of work and, and specialized. Um, how is technology and data collection and data analysis uh, really accelerating progress in the field of, of cancer research and, and cancer treatments? Sure, uh, I think we will all have agreement with Vishal, Noor and I that uh, data is the currency of like what will transform healthcare. We're at that unique moment in time where we've digitized biology. And uh, when any of you have taken your 23andMe test or ancestry, what have you done? You've essentially digitized what would have always been analog, something which would have been passed away. And we'll now have access to that digitally to understand what's going on. The same thing has happened with your blood pressure, your EKG. And in the world of oncology, we've benefited from that as well. Real world data and outcomes of how patients have one done on certain drugs, but also uh, is there a relation between their epigenetic code, the genetic code to the progression or incidence of disease? Uh, we've made tremendous progress in the world of oncology using data over the past decade. Uh, so much so that the highlights over the last decade in where we've made advances in oncology include, one, we've started to use our own immune system to fight cancers. So the idea of personalized cancer therapy is real. We've developed what is the new notion of cancer vaccines, which we never thought would have been possible. We have in the world of diagnostics, where I had spent my time in PhD, uh, it, you see companies now that are coming to life, like Garden Health just went public as a $10 billion company. Uh, I've invested in a company called Freenome. And let me also give an example. In the world of Freenome, uh, what we are trying to do is replace uh, what would normally be the method to detect colon cancer, which is a colonoscopy. Uh, for those of you who have had to go get one, it is very effective. However, it's very uncomfortable and the time and the effort needed to prep for a colonoscopy sometimes deters people from wanting to go get it done. So the question, the simple question we wanted to answer is what if, just what if we could have the same sensitivity and specificity of a colonoscopy that you could just get from a drop of blood or from a blood test. Would that be possible? But not just from genomics. What if we were to able to combine genomics, metabolomics, proteomics, but bring these things as multi-analyte detection, but use data and AI to help in increasing the accuracy of detection for colonoscopy, uh, for colon cancer detection. And that is Freenome. So we've seen massive strides there as well. Uh, rest assured, uh, in the world of oncology, it is probably the area in healthcare that has received the most number of dollars. So we will see the next 10 years or so also harvest some of the efforts that have gone into innovation in oncology. So for our audience, what do you think a realistic time frame is? I know, you know, curing cancer is, is not really uh, the outcome that you're looking for, but how do we how do we get to a point where, where cancer is no longer a death sentence for most people and to the point where, where we can really treat most forms of cancer? Cancer is a complex disease. It's a multi-pathway disease. And I think it's really hard for anyone to say that we will forever put an end to all cancers. I think that we can tackle certain types of cancers and make great great progress towards treating it. We were the first institutional investors in a company called Stemcentrix. Uh, and it used stem cell therapy to treat certain types of cancers. Uh, fortunately, this company has been uh, the biggest exit in healthcare venture capital. And we're excited to have been the first institution to have backed this company. I think you will see novel techniques like that, whether it's stem cell therapy, CARS and CAR-T. You will see the idea of in vivo medicine move oncology to ways 
in which certain things, so for instance, if you had breast cancer in 1990s and 1980s, certain types, I, I think it would be very difficult it was caught in stage two, three to have a good prognosis. And many different types of cancer, even lung cancer, before the world of Ketruda and Optivo, like the outcomes were so much worse. So I do think there are certain cancers where you can now be diagnosed early and live your life to the fullest uh, and have your cancer managed. And that I think is very promising, but I, and I'd be curious to hear from Vishal and Noor, but like to me, I think it's challenging to say that we'll ever find like one, the panacea for cancer where we'll be able to tackle all of cancers at one go. Dr. Galati, I want to ask you a two-part question. One is a follow-up to everything Vas just said about oncology and cancer research and about AI. You know, AI has a lot of different applications across uh, healthcare, oncology, but it also, this hits home for me because my brother is a radiologist, but how is AI uh, doing things to improve radiology? Do we still need human doctors? Is it just a tool that is going to benefit them and increase the accuracy of their diagnoses? But how is AI being applied across oncology and things like radiology to improve healthcare responses? Um, thanks, John. Um, just to pick up on what Waz was saying, I think uh, I, I agree with him uh, uh, entirely that I don't think that we will have a world without cancer. We may have a world where cancer becomes, becomes much less scary and becomes a kind of a chronic condition that we manage rather than something we treat radically, which is what we have done in the past. And a lot of these advances will come from uh, small gains here and there, all the way from detection to management to, to discovery. So it will be a multi-pronged approach and we are going to win against this enemy in small battles rather than one big war to end all wars. So I don't think that that's how we will, we will deal with this. Uh, coming back to your, your other question, which is about radiology, um, Radiology has, had a, had, has been one of the first branches of medicine which, have been effect, which has been affected by AI. So there's a lot of abuse of AI in, in our industry. So I, I, I'm usually a little bit cautious about you know, trying to, uh, in, in an unguarded way, say that AI is going to transform or change, change anything. But specific applications of a specific type of AI has had some, some dramatic improvements in, in the way the data flows, in the way we make diagnoses. So uh, when I have been asked this question before, is AI going to eat radiology, radiologists? And my answer has always been that we would, but we haven't found enough radiologists to eat because globally, there is a massive shortage of radiologists. So for, for I can tell you from the associations of radiologists in the United States or from the Royal College of Radiologists in the UK, wherever I have asked this question, they have all said to me that there are just not enough radiologists. So if you can do something to take some of the load off us, we would be very helpful. Uh, uh, we'll be very, very grateful for that. And one of my portfolio companies, Chiron Medical, has done just that. They are the first European regulated product for mammogram uh, reading. So they are able to read a mammogram, which um, as good as a, as a human radiologist. And what, what they are now finding in, in the world of COVID, we had to stop all mammograms in the UK because patients could not visit hospitals. And now we have a backlog of hundreds of thousands of women who are waiting for their scan, which should have happened several months ago. And the only way we are being able to deal with this now is by deploying MIA, which is their, their uh, product for mammograms, right at the front end, which is assisting radiologist as a second reader. And so that's sort of how, that's sort of one end of the, of the spectrum, if you like, in cancer. Now, if you look at, if you try and imagine how we go further, having better quality images from histopathology and, and, and from radiology and applying machine learning will help us characterize patients better. And if we can characterize patients better, that is better for clinical trials. We can target drugs to the right patients who are more likely to respond. In, and then if we have that data, then it is easier for us to identify patients who actually need the, what treatment they need. So I think that's, that is sort of one end. Then on the discovery side, we will use all the data that's coming out of genomics and proteomics, uh, which is high dimensional data, which human brains cannot comprehend. 
uh, that can be used with use, using specific AI technologies, we can find relationships in there which are going to help us transform the way we treat them. So it's a multi-pronged approach, I would say. So my brother's still going to have a job in 10 years. That's good, good for me. Your brother is definitely going to have a job and he's, his job will only get better because he will have a little, little machine radiologist sitting next to him, uh, helping him get better at what he does every day. So his wife and my sister-in-law is an emergency medicine doctor, and he gets to just sit there and have a machine give him the diagnosis. It doesn't seem quite fair to me. I but, don't, well, I 100% agree with you. I think your, your brother is in a much better place. Nor, do you have anything to add to the conversation about AI and how it's transforming healthcare? So from my perspective, I think the most interesting way that AI is transforming healthcare is that it's personalizing it. So given all the data that Michelle is talking about accumulating and then layering that on top of you know, the efficacy of different drugs, you're able ultimately with then the information about the genomics that Vas is alluding to, get to a point where as a patient, if you're sick, there's a certain level of expectation that you can have that the treatment recommended to you will actually work for you. And I think like now what we see in medicine is, okay, well, if you're sick, God forbid, you know, it's try this. And if this doesn't work, try that. And if that doesn't work, we'll try this. And especially for chronic conditions, you get into this position where, and there's a side effect and this might work and that hasn't worked. You know, and so I think what AI will do is push everything towards if you have this kind of genomic base and you have tried this before and that hasn't worked and we've seen the reaction of that on you, then we have a 99% certainty that this other method will work. And that applies to medicine as well as to other more holistic treatments, as well as to prevention, as well as to early identification. Because if you have these symptoms for this particular condition, then statistically speaking, based on, again, your DNA and your sequence, you might actually also be susceptible to this. So why don't we check that? Right. But that only comes from loads and loads of data that is then being kind of absorbed um, and the layers and layers of AI on top of that that give you this information. Um, and I think we're just at the beginning of that. So that level of personalized medicine and, and more targeted medicine, um, I think is something that we all look forward to um, because it takes away the uncertainty. Um, then on the radiology side, I mean, we have so many companies in the region and across the world where you know, in developing markets, you have a lot of contributions from you know, well-wishers and, and, and people that say, here, take these machines. Right? So now we've put these fantastic machines in these remote villages um, and, and you, know, you can take x-rays and you can do mammograms and you can do all these things. Yeah, but guess what? There's no one to read these, right? And so you have all this remote teleradiology as we call it. So then how does AI integrate with teleradiology? Because the accuracy there is not where it needs to be. It doesn't matter how much you compress in order to send it over again, it's low bandwidth. It's not the internet that we have in some markets. Um, and then somebody else is supposed to read it and send that back. And the error rates are, are much higher than we would like them to be. So if AI can come in and supplement that input and supplement um, everything that's done in that space, then that is very much welcome to Michelle's point. There aren't enough radiologists to eat. So, so it's definitely something we look forward to because it augments and it supplements. It doesn't substitute is where so, we come up. A question from one of our listeners, and, and uh, maybe Dr. Galati, you can take this, or Voss, whoever feels most comfortable, but it's about privacy relating to data. So in a world where AI is eating everything and we're placing an emphasis on trying to gather as much data as possible, but you do have regulation in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere uh, that prevents the oversharing of data, how do privacy concerns factor into you know, AI's uh, really infiltration of, of our entire healthcare system? So uh, I think it's a, it's a very important question, uh, John. I think that there has been a, a fair amount of discussion around um, just collecting lots and lots of data. And I think with data, as I always say to all my portfolio companies, is that data is just not, not just an asset. It is also a liability because it comes with a huge amount of responsibility that you have someone's data and how you're going to use that. And so I would say, in addition to machine learning, the second most important job that my founders do is constantly evaluate their data policies and their, their, their understanding of what data that they need and what how to use it. It is, it, this could, if we are not responsible in the way 
we are using data and how we are applying it, we could end up destroying this whole industry. And this is, this is a very, very important challenge. This is not a problem that just engineers or just doctors or just investors can, can, can solve. This is a, a much wider conversation with the whole world of how, what are the trade-offs that we are willing to accept in return for getting what we get. And I think that this is a very live debate and very, very active in all my companies. Vas, do you have anything to add to that? I agree that it's important. And I think that uh, we tend to work with de-identified data whenever possible. So we have no sense of understanding or identifying what we're learning from. The other part, which you see uh, happening in the Valley today is we're working on longitudinal data that is identical to that of a real person. We call it a digital twin. And we're generating data that is synthetic that you can actually use. And hey, maybe FDA one day will accept that in substitution for real data. So I think it's important. And I think that we're all conscious of it and responsible. And uh, it is absolutely a central principle before we move forward. But to add to the world of AI, just really quickly, uh, I agree with Vishal and Noor completely that we are at the start of what is something really special. But I will say sometimes the word AI gets overused, especially here in the Valley. And is it a simple Excel macro? Is it AI? Like, let's actually really talk about that. It's not really AI. Come on. But if it is, I'll say you find AI in a lot of strange places and unexpected places where you would not expect. I invested in a company called Echo, E-K-O, which is changing your humble stethoscope. For the past 200 years, a stethoscope hasn't changed. Think about that. Someone is manually listening to your heart and lungs to tell you if something is wrong with you. What if you could now have the largest database of human sounds, heart sounds, lung sounds, and EKG data, and you truly use machine learning and AI, and the algorithms could do better than four out of five cardiologists in detecting and classifying murmurs. You could do ejection fraction. You could do, in the world of COVID, not be in contact with the patient, and yet diagnosed it's a crackle or what is going on with your lungs. That I think is a great application of AI at work, not just here in San Francisco, but anywhere, you could be in Nigeria, you could be in the Middle East, you could be anywhere in the world and you are actually scaling up the use of AI. This company has seven FDA approvals, five of which have been in the world of algorithms or AI. And they've been able to lead that. And we've seen in the world of COVID another accelerant to the adoption of AI in the world of medicine. The last comment I'll have there is just because you can create something with AI doesn't mean it'll get used by physicians across the world. The key question that you should ask is who's going to pay for it? And does it fit into the workflow of a physician? Important principles as you design AI, if anyone's looking to create the next AI solution, do think about that early because otherwise it's just cool technology that'll never get used by anyone. That's fascinating. Uh, let's turn to COVID for a few minutes. I'm sure that's a subject that's at the top of people's minds. So you guys are obviously in the healthcare investing space, the health tech space. What's the outlook? And we'll start with Dr. Galati. What's the outlook and time frame uh, for developing effective therapies, which is obviously one piece that could help us you know, reopen our economies a little bit sooner? And what's the outlook and potential efficacy of vaccines uh, for the COVID-19 virus? So thanks, John. I think it is a very topical question, and uh, uh, you know, it's it's a, not just a million dollar question. It is not a billion dollar question. It's a hundreds of billion dollar question right now. It, if you look at the economic impact of COVID, and the human impact is incalculable. So, uh, in my view, I, I have um, so I, I, in my mind, there are three stages of of how we get out of this. The first stage was to try existing drugs to see if any of those work. Uh, we have had some some uh, some things that work, but by and large, the what about President Trump's favorite drug, Dr. Galati? Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, even though I was very optimistic early on, uh, the data just does not support that hydroxychloroquine has any benefit, uh, and so I, I, I'm afraid uh, Mr. Trump will have just millions of these tablets sitting somewhere in in, in a storeroom in the White House. And I doubt if they will be of any benefit to, to, to anyone. 
Uh, and so the first generation, if you like, the effect sizes have not been huge. Remdesivir, uh, uh, you know, the, the effect size is not huge. It is something when we have nothing. Then we have dexamethasone, which is which is uh, which has a which has a higher effect size than remdesivir, but um, still not high enough, I would say. The second generation is the new products that we might develop now specifically, and the, where I'm very optimistic are a number of antibody treatments. This is passive immunization where people will get specific antibodies, uh, which are you know Lily is making one. Um, uh, Regeneron is making one, and there is some experience for from Ebola, for example, that such treatments could work. And I, I what I'm I'm trying to look for is where is the therapeutic window? Is it something you give when someone's exposed, or do you give it at, at a later stage? So we will find out what that is. So coming to the vaccines, uh, I am more optimistic about vaccines now than I have been a few uh, in, in the last few weeks or months. I think that. The data that we are seeing, particularly from, from the Oxford group, is actually very, very good. Uh, I, I, I looked at the data that came out from, from their animal experiments, and I think that they have been able to show pretty good antibody response and pretty good T-cell response. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. What we don't know and no one knows is when we will have sufficient number of COVID infections in the control group to be able to say that the treatment group works. So we don't know whether that will happen in September, October, November, when that will happen. And unfortunately, in many parts where they were doing clinical trials, the transmission rates have gone down. So actually, you just your control group is not getting any cases. So you can't really tell whether your vaccine works. So long story short, I, I'm optimistic about, about vaccines. I think that I can't tell you how many or if any vaccines we will have in this year, but I'm very optimistic that in 2021, we will probably have more than one vaccine that will have sufficient level of efficacy that is at least being given to high-risk patients. So what you're telling me is SALT Abu Dhabi, our conference that we had last December, we're probably not having an in-person SALT conference in, in uh, the UAE in 2020, and that NOR spoke I, at that conference last year. I, I'm afraid I, I don't think I have good news for you. But, but I know, John, you can yeah. have your new one in Vegas next year, which you hopefully, have. inshallah, as they say. <laughs> Nor at Global Ventures, have you guys been working on uh, you know, things related to COVID? Um, you know, I think that that the UAE is a very special place, um, and you know, there's been multiple responses across the different Emirates for COVID. Um, I think that the, the contact tracing is a lot more interesting in some of these markets um, right now than the therapeutic response, which we're leaving to the lilies of the world. Vas, how about you? Have you been uh, helping us with the virus at all? Yeah, so when in February, March, when we started seeing leaders of certain countries go out and promote drugs with, before clinical trials uh, without naming people, like uh, it was important for us to step in and actually do something about it. So we built at Artist Ventures uh, a comprehensive innovation tracker for the world of COVID. So we have tracked every diagnostic, therapeutic, and vaccine that has been created in the world to fight the pandemic. And I can tell you, as of today, there are 331 diagnostics that have received EUA or some sort of regulatory approval. There are 145 therapies or treatments, many of them repurposed, like Vishal mentioned, that are in human trials. And there are 31 vaccine candidates that are in human trials as we speak today. Uh, with that, I would say we keep a close eye. There are two ways to think about innovation here. Noor is absolutely right. The first one is a public health response. What can you do, whether it's better masks, better contact tracing stuff to help prevent things? So that's number one. And that is sometimes easier to implement and, and it should happen. And the second is where we're focused on investing more, which is in the therapeutics as well as diagnostics. It's the healthcare innovation, which can put an end to the pandemic, hopefully. And what I would agree with Vishal that like I started off a little more skeptical on the vaccine stuff and I never thought that we would be able to even get into phase three trials by the end of the year. It's promising to say that there are two phase three trials that are currently ongoing and we could get data readouts as early as September. What is worth noting to everyone is even if we had 
really positive data for the vaccines this year, it's really hard to manufacture. You can't really manufacture for the mass markets and scale and, and the supply chain is not built for us to be able to distribute this to everyone. So, but it gives me hope to say that with the vaccines that we've made progress in the world of um, therapeutics, I'm not surprised because we're repurposing drugs to ever found something that would put an end to it. But I'm happy that we've identified things that can help alleviate uh, certain, uh, at least if you're put on a ventilator, it can be made a little bit better. Uh, and hopefully we'll find other breakthroughs there as well. In terms of uh, the global society and our approach to how to slow the spread of the virus and how to eventually you know, develop immunity to it and move past it, there's been some debate about what the right approach is. Sweden is an example in particular that decided to adopt an approach where they weren't going to shut everything down. They were going to try to develop some level of herd immunity. The, the virus is obviously something, it's novel. We don't know much about it. Uh, but the returns from Sweden have shown that it didn't really spare their economy and they haven't really developed the type of immunity that they were hoping for. Dr. Galati, you know, did we make the right decision to shut things down and have these rolling quarantines? Are we going to have to quarantine again in places like Texas and Arizona that have these huge spikes in cases? Or is a herd immunity type approach the right approach? Um, John, I, I'm not in favor of the herd immunity approach. And um, I think a lot of the data supports that now. Um, I think that the, a lot of the herd immunity debate is based around number of deaths. And people are saying the fatality rate is X or Y. So if we let everyone get infected, it misses two very important points. One is that this disease does not affect everyone in the same way. There are huge variations in who gets this and who doesn't. People at, in certain jobs, which are generally lower paid jobs, where a lot of immigrants work, um, those people are exposed more to this and the impact of this is going to be much, much greater. And I think we should think about the ethical consequences of taking such decision. And the other thing which is often missed is that just because you don't die of COVID-19 doesn't mean everything is okay. We now see the consequences of of lung disease, chronic lung disease. We're seeing, seeing neurological complications of COVID-19. So it's not just that, oh, it's okay, just a bunch of old people are dead. It's a lot of old people are dead and you have a huge population of young people who have chronic lung and brain disease. I do not believe that that is the right way to go, but that's, that is my, my, my view. Vas, do you have anything to add to that? 100% agree. So I have a question, and during this, this quarantine, like a lot of other people, I said, you know what, I want to use this time at home to get healthy. And so I started looking at the wearable device market, and I said, okay, I don't have an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. Let me look out there and see what's out there. And it was actually a very interesting fact-finding mission. And there's a couple of, of devices, the Whoop, for example, that the PGA Tour, the golf tour in the United States, some players are wearing it. One player, while wearing it, was able to get readings into his app that basically indicated early signs of COVID and he tested positive for COVID. Uh, the NBA basketball, uh, they're encouraging their players to wear the Aura Ring, which is another device that uh, can provide early detection signs for COVID and other diseases. What is the, the future of the wearables market and how does that contribute to this data-driven future within healthcare? And Voss, we'll start with you sure. on that. Um, I'd say the wearables market is very tricky. There is an immense like excitement and adoption from the hype cycle created for people to want to adopt it. And then past that, how many people, well, I don't have to, the market research shows that people who had Fitbit stopped using it after six months. And that is the case why Fitbit doesn't exist today as Fitbit, because you know what? It's hard to sustain as a company with these wearables over a long period of time. I'm not saying wearables as a category is a bad category. I think. I don't know if people have found out like what psychologically makes people think that there's not the next device for you to try out. And how is the action coming from these devices uh, going to truly change and transform your life? I like ordering these things just because I'm fascinated by them. So I've ordered in my, I probably opened my closet. You have, I have like a, a thing from Stanford, like a pebble, which measures your breathing rate. I have things called Comigo, which does breathing exercises and meditation. I have things like the, the ring to measure things. So I, I've tried all of them, but I probably used them for like 
a couple of weeks and none of them, uh, or even for sleep apnea, you can have an app to try and listen to your breathing and snoring. Uh, I did not snore last night if anyone was curious, so which is really good. <laughs> um, maybe it's my caffeine or uh, content, but I, I'm not sure uh, overall, like how useful it is to transform my life. And so the key thing I'd say is if you're innovating in this space, uh, I'm always for people coming up with novel solutions. Just answer the simple question. How are you going to add prolonged value to the person using it beyond that first six months of fascination? And if you answer that, you do truly do have a business that is worth it. And for the COVID world, the last part that I'll add is I think it is useful. I do think connected devices and connected systems, uh, because telehealth without sensors is just Skype and talking to a patient. So the idea of wearables or sensors at large are very useful and should be integrated into medical practice. Skype, Skype might save some hypochondriacs a few trips to the doctor, though. You know, don't don't discount the value of uh, of Zoom or Skype. Nor are you guys looking at wearables at all? Or do you have an opinion? Um, both, yes. So option D, all of the above. Um, so wearables in general at large, um, I think, you know, to Bass's point, it's like, what value do you bring to my life um, as a wearable beyond novelty? Um, but I think more importantly, the, the accuracy of the data capture varies from, where, you know, from one wearable to another. And until people are convinced that this is actually incredibly accurate, and based on this data, there is some sort of tangible outcome for me, um, it's always going to be a novelty factor. And the one we're looking at now that's actually really interesting um, is in the fintech space. And it helps um, women, you know, wear, and it's more like a wearable. So it's the, the undergarments, et cetera, the bras, met, you know, measuring different sorts of things that are important for women with breast cancer, for hearts, for, and again, you go back to the woman versus men. So you have to think on the femtech side, you have a lot happening and there's a lot in general in medicine and healthcare where people have to come forward recently and said, actually, if we ran these trials on a woman, they look very different if we you know, only ran them on men. And guess what, 95% of the time we run them on men. So now you're coming back with all these wearables and all this data capture for females around the world, not just males, um, to say, how is this different? What data can we capture? How are women's hearts different to men's hearts? How we're all, and the faster we capture that data, the better medicine we can provide for women around the world. And the fastest way to capture that data is wearables at this point. So it's really a data capture exercise that people are plugging into. Um, so we're looking at a few, I mean, the one I mentioned is coming out of MIT. So you're seeing a lot, but they have to be very focused on, here is the value I'm adding. Here is how long you need to do this for. Either it's a treatment or it's prevention, but it's, it has to be beyond the novelty. So we have a couple of audience questions before I let you guys go. Dr. Galati, the first one's for you. What's the best approach for a clinical physician to get started in venture capital if you don't have a business background? And what was that transition like for you? Um, so uh, thanks for, for, for this question. Um, I think that one of the things I, I've been asked this question a few times, and I find that most people I know who have been in, who are in VC um, none of their journeys are ever representative. In other words, that there isn't like a cluster of things that they have done. So in this call, there are three investors. Noor, Raz, and I have all three have had very different journeys to get to doing exactly the same job in different parts of the world. So there isn't a highly representative way how a physician can or, or a scientist can become a venture capitalist. I think what what I find common in the colleagues that I work with and people in my industry is that uh, they, if you come from a medical background, you generally have a research background with it. You're not just a physician who's, who's a frontline physician. So you've had some encounter about developing new things and you have that excitement of making something new. And I think that that kind of helps you do that. And I think that the, it always also is a, very, uh, it, it, when you first leave medicine and go into venture capital, capital, it is actually quite disconcerting because venture capital is, healthcare or being a doctor is very specialized. So you have a very, very niche specialty. So for example, my specialty was a certain type of immune cell, which is only found in the liver and it responds to only one type of virus. So that was my specialty. 
But when you go into venture capital, you can no longer afford to have a specialty which is that narrow. So you have to retrain yourself in order to be to to learn new things really really fast. And if that is the aptitude you have and that is the kind of uh, life you want, then I think you should definitely consider venture capital. Next question is for Vas. Uh, you're on the board of a project called the Trevor Project, which is a company that provides mental health counseling to young LGBTQ individuals. As we know, technology can be a double-edged sword and the, the impact it has on young people's brains. How can technology, and Vishal uh, touched on this earlier, how can technology be leveraged in a positive way to positive, positively affect our mental health? I mean, during the COVID-19 crisis, it's especially relevant as people you know, sit and stir in their homes. Yeah, I think mental health is still so taboo in so many markets and people wanting to seek help is uh and having even grown up like in india i can tell you that the idea that depression is something is it real or is it just something is wrong with you it's just almost even in educated families and that was partly what motivated me to be part of an organization and even as an investor i look and seek for things and i'll connect with Vishal about what he's working on in the mental health space because he said he is but I think uh, in terms of technology being an enabler to help in preventing, like you'd look at the United States, uh, it was fascinating for me to find that like the number one cause of death for people under the age of 21. So for youth, uh, one of the major causes is uh, suicide. And it is absolutely preventable, is absolutely one where we can help and provide the tools and methods to help in even, you say one life, it is something we've done right. And technology has been an important part. So with Trevor, the way in which they've done that is uh, one, they started off as an, or, or an organization by providing phone support, but now they moved into using technology by using uh, chat-based support, because that is where younger people are moving. But you, you see where technology is being used, is they even have NLP, or so natural language processing, which can pick up sentiment without identifying it's anonymous, but you can still pick up triggers uh, and understand who has a higher propensity of taking their own life. So you know where and how you can intervene. But not just that, you have a clinical path of how to respond as well. When you learn from a machine time and time, humans may have a different way of responding to a certain question someone has asked. But a machine is very clinical about it and tells you exactly how you should respond for the best outcome. And so you can train mental health professionals to also respond in certain ways that gives you the best possible outcome. Well, thank you all so much for joining us from different parts of the world. Uh, Dr. Galati from London, uh, Noor from Dubai, and Avas from San Francisco. That's the pleasure of this work from home environment is that we've been able to have a lot of these conversations that might not have happened uh, if not for the circumstances. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Noor, Dr. Galati, Vas, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, John. Thank